Okay, the mics are hot. We're we're recording. It's the real deal. Um, so this podcast, I've got my very good friend, um, Mr. Mike Hine. No, the great and powerful Mike the great Hine. And powerful Mike. <laughs> okay, because I'm I'm the Wizard of Oz. I look well, better on no, screen no. than I do in person. <laughs> yeah, the, the the thing is, is I can honestly say great and powerful because my arms are about nine inches in circumference, uh-huh. and yours are probably thirty. So uh, you know, there is a contrast between you and I, and the great and powerful um, certainly fitting. Oh well, thank you. <laughs> um, so. Uh, I'll introduce the podcast like I always do. Um, the podcast is called The Visit. And the point behind giving it a title is because I have to put something on the website, right? Right. <laughs> so if I have to pick a title, I want to pick something that was apt. When it came to my business, um, I literally, my business is called The Electronics Guy. Why? Because every time I'm in a client's house, the wife is on the phone with the husband, the husband's, the husband's at the office, and he says, well, who's there? Well, it's The Electronics Guy. Or the TV guy or whatever. You know, they just use a very right. general term. So I said, fuck it. I'll just run with it. And I called myself the electronics guy. And, and that's like something like 15 years later. Um, and so that's kind of the way that the, the name The Visit came along. Um, um, I look at modern communications being pretty insufficient. Um, you know, social media is good at screaming into a crowd. It is not good for one-to-one communication. Exactly. Um, super impersonal. Um, it's, um, it lacks depth and substance every now and then you get some substance. Um, but it's hard to come by. Um, and usually the interactions aren't great. And so in a day and age of poor communication, I long for better communication. And I remember when, when I was a kid and this is, you know, sort of where the visit comes from. Um, my parents would tell us to get our stuff together. We're leaving and the question was always, well, what are we doing? Well, we're going to go visit. And that would usually mean we're going to go to an aunt's house or an uncle, you know, an aunt and uncle's or, or some close family friends. And, and they would sit down at the table with a cup of coffee. And um, the kids would um, be, you know, off uh, playing hide and seek, ghosts in the graveyard, all that stuff outside and late into the wee hours. And, and that could be a Tuesday night. Yeah. It didn't have to be a weekend. Right. Um, and so this is not trying to duplicate that, but more paying homage to it. Um, so the, the, the name, the visit came to be, um, so yeah, that's where we are now. Um, so Mr. Mike Hine, um, we've known each other since junior high, something like no, that. Uh, prior to that even fresh. No, no. I, I moved to Gillespie two weeks before the freshman year start. Okay. So it was like late what 91 so the hind name the hind name in gillespie is not uncommon no but it was but you are not of the hind lineage that is not uncommon so um it's distant my grandfather is the first cousin of the hind brothers that established hind implement in dorchester okay and hind implement was an international harvester uh, dealership that just took off. Mm-hmm. Um, there in Dorchester, there used to be both uh, International Harvester and John Deere, uh, which n- hardly anybody remembers anymore. But uh, three Hind brothers, uh, David, Bill, and ooh, I'm going to get in trouble because I forgot the third one. <laughs> um, 
they crushed it. They sold scout trucks, uh, every single, you know, tractor you could possibly think of. Mm-hmm. And that's where the kind of really took off. Um, to so that, make the name popular. So that's the prevalence of the name in, in, uh, in the McCoupin, Montgomery, Madison yeah. County areas. And that's where it all started. Uh, Bill Hine um, is a name that you will hear quite often. There's mm-hmm. several of them. Yeah. But uh, it is a wonderful part of the family that has really you know, dug deep into the roots of being a farmer in, in McCoupin County. Uh, Take, for instance, uh, Bill Sr. Yeah, he he started the farm. Well, I, he continued the farm and made it large. Uh, but he also is on the board of directors for MJM, uh, the electrical co-op that provides electricity to the rural community in McCoupin County, oh, no Jersey, and Montgomery. Um, and then uh, his sons uh, are just crushing it keeping the keeping the farm family alive and and you know pushing it they've got their hobbies they're really great men um i'm happy you know kind of proud of them so i I rarely see them anymore but so um what you're referencing is not only the past but all the way to the present yeah okay um now on my side um there's a little bit of history but nobody nobody really knows it uh my great-grandfather who i was really happy to 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 kind of get to know uh when we moved back to the area um he lived almost to be 100 years old but i found out that he put in the first telephone lines for dorchester oh really he he put in the poles he put up the wire and my great grandmother was the first operator and there's and the uh operator station i believe is still standing in dorchester and that would be neat to see. Yeah. And it just, it goes, it, that is where my craft comes in because you could say my great grandfather was the first lineman in Dorchester and there's been a lineman in every generation since. So my grandfather, he was a lineman and he retired from MJM. Um, my, uh, uncle Joe, uh, he was a lineman. He worked for, uh, oh, I'm trying to remember the name of it. I was out towards Indiana. He worked out there for a long time, and then he came back, and now he works at MJM, more of a, a leadership role. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my dad is an electrician, and I went, I I tried to be a lineman and found out I don't like heights. Oh boy! <laughs> and uh, heights is a big deal for linemen. Oh height! Oh, it's it's everything, right? It's everything. Um, some people who just absolutely love being a lineman. They go to the extreme, and they'll, some people refer to it as blood money because, uh, take for instance, uh, last summer, they redid a line that goes across the Mississippi River just right off of uh, uh, the bridge, and I witnessed a lineman for a week climb out of a helicopter onto the top yeah. of, of this frame. <laughs> walk out to the edge of it to the insulators get out his ladder and hang it from the insulator and worked sitting on the ladder on the insulator all day long (laughs) and i'm like 
there is no way that you're yeah. going to get me three, four hundred feet up in the air, have me hanging from a ladder, and work on a line. There's, and, there's it, some, there's something unique about that the, DNA. Oh, yeah, there's something <laughs> unique about him, I'm sure. And uh, you know, and I wouldn't argue with him one no, bit because if he's not scared of that, he's not scared of nothing. Right. And then you take the just the mindset you have to be in to accomplish that goal mm-hmm. because you know that that's high power. That's yeah. that's. Uh, I'm going to guess if it was even a 31.5 KVA, that's a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. It's hot the whole time. I mean, they don't shut it off. That's amazing. So he's isolated and he is skilled. And I've met many linemen like that and they are very smart. I mean, they just, oh, yeah. they, it just blows you away with you, what they know and what they have to know. Well, I imagine you can't, you can't hire a dummy and put him there. No, no, <laughs> that, that guy is trained. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And, I started off, I, I, <laughs> it took me, I was late in life when I finally picked up the craft, but I went to Rankin, got introduced to it. I was an inside wireman for a company in, in Southern Missouri and, uh, it wasn't quite my cup of tea. What part of Missouri? Uh, it was in Arnold. Okay. Yeah. I'm familiar. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you want to call that Southern Missouri, but I was driving all the way from Gillespie to Arnold to get mm-hmm. my, my work. Yeah. And they would send me anywhere, whether it was, you know, light residential or, uh, we worked on a school that was putting in its for own forensic lab. Just blew my mind. That's interesting. Oh, that was cool. Um, but I was an inside wireman. I was just pulling wire, making sure that the terminations were proper and, mm-hmm. you know, everything had to be code, you know? So I, I was, you know, getting really good at knowing, you know, the code for for that area um and then i had an opportunity and i got went into robotics and uh, that's interesting yeah it was it was it is super cool and went to work for caterpillar and they had a building that had over 300 robots in it 1.3 million square feet of just automation wow. everything was automated uh the robots were welders and material handlers uh, everything was automated. You had um, a uh, what do you want to call it? A were you, truck. Were you seeing the product at the end of that production line with all the robotics running everything? I got to see the end product of the frame, and because the, the frames were just ungodly huge. So clearly, a robot can probably do it faster than a guy. But does a robot? By just default, do it better than a person. Would you say that the product coming off the line at the end was just solidly better every single time? The consistency's there. Okay. As long as the operator is consistent with taking care of the machine right. and providing. They have to be maintained and calibrated. Not, and yeah, maintained, calibrated, but the operator still has to know. Mm-hmm. Still has to be a certified welder because the robot doesn't pay attention to environment. Yeah, is it a really hot day? And it can't verify its work. It can't verify its work. Yeah, um, it knows patterns, mm-hmm. um, and you know Caterpillar puts out a consistent, consistently strong machine, mm-hmm. and everything is inspected. I mean, you're doing X-rays on every single weld, on every single machine. That's why they're so expensive, and that's why they last. Indefinitely. You know, indefinitely. <laughs> almost. Yeah, almost. 
uh, you know, I've, I've seen videos of uh, they were offloading one of the largest bulldozers from a uh, ship onto a pier. The crane failed, and the the tractor fell. What'd they say? Something like forty, fifty feet. Hmm. Landed on its feet, and guy went up in the cab, started up, and drove off. Holy cow! Mm-hmm. The center of gravity on them is actually twice their their height underground, so you can't you can't hardly tip. A, a that's a really cab. interesting. It is. Re- it just blows your mind on how they can do it. I, I think of center of gravity in terms of cars because I'm a car guy. Mm-hmm. You know, and used to drive Porsches, and that was. That was always their claim to fame. Is they put the they put the they put the passenger carriage mm-hmm. inside of the wheels and the, or is ah jeez I'm trying to remember how the guy phrased it the 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 cab is inside the fenders the fenders are inside the wheels and the wheels are the widest track and so that you know creates a center of gravity that's really low and very centered the, right. the the mass of the car is centered to the middle of the car right in the case of like my cars which were 944 951 turbos that sort of thing um because they had 50 50 weight distribution the way that the car was set up you know the center of gravity was very literally in the center of the car yep. and very 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 low yep. the concept of having a center of gravity that reaches ben- below grade is insane it is insane i didn't even think about the possibility of those physics yeah and uh, they actually, um, as far as the robots w- are concerned, uh, you still need a man there. Mm-hmm. The robot can do it faster. But the man is there to make sure that the robot is producing the quality necessary. Mm-hmm. So you've got an operator there that is watching the weld. And he is a welder because if that machine goes down, production still must go forward. And he is, he's going to get out his wire welder and he's going to pick up where that robot left off. Can he do it as fast? No, because he gets tired. He gets overheated. You know, he's got to eat. He's got to drink. You know, so there's that portion to it. Um, but it's just another tool. Mm-hmm. You know, it's... Yeah, they reduced their workforce as far as skilled labor um, when they brought in the robot, but the maintenance staff tripled. That's interesting. Because now you need a mechanic and an electrician to, to work on those. And, I mean, with 300 robots, just going at it, because you're talking, when I say robot, it's not this machine that's got an arm and holding a welder on it you've got lathes that are considered robots because they've got uh, five axes actually there's a robot system that actually had two control systems because it was so large wow Um, because it had it would go up and down left and right in and out but it still had to be able to rotate the frame on like a spit Mm mm-hmm and that rotation had to uh, be, um, what's the word, uh, coordinated, mm-hmm. like a dance with the other robot. So you actually had two robot systems working together to weld this frame. Yeah. And it was the coolest thing to watch because it's not like, you know, 
this thing would fill your room. No, one half of the spit would fill this room. And this room's what, 20 by 30? So the robot cell for this thing was... So the the whole thing is the the size of a house. Yeah. Yeah. And it's holding this D11, which is as big as a house. Yeah. And it's turning it. And And there's this other robot going up and down on an axis. And let me guess, the whole thing moves almost effortlessly. Effortlessly. (laughs) Effortlessly. But when it goes down, this was the cool part. When it would go down, it was an emergency for us you know, robotics technicians to get over there. Yeah. Because for every hour that the machine was down, the company lost $110,000. Yeah. That's how you know that they have the cost benefit analysis done down to the penny yeah. of, of why to bring in that robot to do that versus just having guys do it. If right. they know the, the per minute cost of that machine not being in operation, mm-hmm. they knew what the per minute cost of the men doing yeah. the same work yeah. um, would have been as well. Right. And those companies are so huge. They probably have, oh, just the, you know, hire huge analytics companies to work out those numbers. And oh yeah, yeah. Um, but as far as the tractor is concerned, um, I wanted to finish about the robotics. But so we were done. But, but when I say that the center of gravity was so low, yeah, it's actually so so extreme that it was actually the actual operators that kept the tractor from doing its absolute best. So now they have electric. It, these are cool. I watched them in prototype. Now they're in production. They have electric Caterpillar bulldozers, and it, it's a diesel motor pushing a turbine uh, onto electric motors to push this thing. So it, it's a generator. Oh. It's a big generator that is just going balls out. Wow. And, and it has electric motors. The electric motors are able to operate with more precision. With more precision. And, and torque. it makes it even closer in center of gravity. Oh, no Because now these servos are like at the very bottom of this machine. And there's no cab. So all of this is actually being done remotely. The, <laughs> the operator is safe off-site. Yeah, you know, running it remotely, and doing work that would normally scare the shit out of somebody. I mean, you're talking almost inverted on a plane. Mm-hmm. You know that they can almost stand straight up and still run. I mean, it, it's just crazy what they're capable of. But when they found out that it was actual emotion of oh my god, am I going to tip? Oh my god, am I going to slide? Because they will slide. Mm-hmm. They'll slide all the way down a hill. And you'll be safe at the end. It's going to be a wild ride, though. Yeah, it's going to be a hell of a ride. <laughs> that would be, I, I've seen a couple of them. You, uh, you'll see them slide out at the, uh, um, uh, oh, the trash heap just outside of Granite City or Madison. Was the slide anything like our slide when I tried to drive my car down your driveway that one day? Oh, that was cool. <laughs> Everybody always took that for granted. That was fucking terrifying. It was cool, though. Terrifying. <laughs> so glad I lived through that day. <laughs> Everybody would like be hauling ass down that driveway because it was so cool to have the, the, the dust behind you, and you're trying to leave this big trail, and then you get to the bottom of the hill, and you're like, oh, shit, I, it's a bridge, and it's two boards. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember we, we spun out in the mid-span of that fucking thing. Yeah. Spun out. Ended oh. up the wrong way. 
in my piece of shit Mustang. It was still a cool Mustang. No, dude. Yeah. I mean, it was my <laughs> it first. It was the four cylinder. It was, it was rare. It was my first car. <laughs> it was my first car. It only ran part of the time, and when it did run, it was a pain in the dick, man. It was, but I did love it. I did love it, man. That that I have a special place in my heart for the first car. Oh yeah, the first car that you buy on your own. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember laying on my hood. You know, my car stereo was just some piece of crap. I can't remember what it was. It was just sort of sitting in the dash. It wasn't bolted in. Uh-huh. And my speakers were just eight by nine drivers that I put in shoe boxes. Oh. And they're sitting in the floor, in the, the, the back seat floor. Oh, wow. Yeah, that, that was my sound system. And I remember going out and washing the car, cleaning the windows, doing the whole nine yards. And, and um, evening would come, the sun was setting, it was warm out. I remember laying on the hood of the hood of the car, you know, the, uh, with your back on the windshield, oh, yeah. you know, just stretching out on the car and listening to the stereo. And dude golden memory for me good time golden memory and that car was fuck man we bought it for a hundred and a quarter i think and and put our own motor in it i think i remember something about that yeah yep it had a rest spot on the hood from where the prior motor burnt eh. you know what i mean we have a when when your motor catches on fire and you get steel real hot it burns oh, yeah. through the paint and then you end up with rust where right where there used to be paint gone. yeah and that there was a spot on that hood from that but i didn't fucking care man <laughs> i did not care i was so it was my car yeah and my dad and i put that motor in it and yeah i there are a lot of cars i wish i had back i'm not quite sure i'd want that one back <laughs> <laughs> i do miss it though i, I miss those memories those warm evenings. Oh yeah. Um, just hanging out, just going for a drive. Oh yeah, shit. that was. Do you ever just go for a drive anymore? Me. I mean, I know you're a car guy too. Oh yeah, I I love cars. Um, what is your car status? Hmm. What is your car status? Is what, it a good one? I have several. Okay, good. <laughs> I was hoping that I was hoping that there was a good story here. Yeah, there's there's a lot of good stories. So. Um, I don't even know where to start. We'll start with, okay, high school car. Yeah. You know, you, you had your Mustang, and the very first car that I was given, because it was bad, was an 85 Ford LTD2 four-door. That is bad. That is horrid. <laughs> but the cool thing about it was is that it had the same V6 motor as the Turbo Thunderbird that year. Okay. So I swapped out a couple parts from the junkyard, gave it a little boost. Eh, was it anything phenomenal? No. Um, but I got frustrated because I had all these friends that had pickup trucks and they'd go mud and, and all this. So I was like, fuck it. I don't care. So I took to the shop class and I was like, Hey guys, I want some beefier springs, longer shocks. And I want these bias truck tires put on the back. That son of a bitch before I brought it in there bounced like uncle Buck's Lincoln. Yeah. I mean, it was just horrid. Land yacht style. Huh? Land yacht style. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Everybody had a good time in it. Uh, seats were broken. I mean, it was just bad. Yeah. So I was like, I'm going to fuck this car up, you know, and before I get my new one. So I put, I had them put all that stuff on there. Those biased tires would sling mud all day long, and I would chase them through the fields in my little car. That's hilarious. Oh, it was hilarious. What Everybody, year did you say it was? Huh? What year did you say it was? 85. 85. So that's so late 70s, an LTD would have been a huge, huge car. car. Yeah. But in the mid 80s, 
They shrunk it. They shrunk it, and I don't even know what. It's to like compare. a Ford Ford Tempo size style or uh, size car, right? More like the Maverick. It was about as big as a Maverick. Okay, yeah, I remember um, that. Uh, but it was like a four door Maverick. But okay, the eighties boxy. You know, was it brown? It was white. Oh, it was white. At least it was white. When I yeah. think of grotesque eighties cars, my mind automatically goes to that that baby poop brown. <laughs> well. It just so happens, and this is later in life, I found one that was brown, and I bought it just for the fun of it. Yeah. It had the straight six in it. It was fun. I drove it for a year, and I was like, ah, I'm over this. You know, but it was, I was like, oh, I'm reminiscing. You know, it's the old, you know, uh, the old LTD. But um, I got rid of it after I burned up the transmission in it, trying to bomb around like all my buddies. And I got a 91 Pontiac Sunbird. Okay. Black. That's some, it, that's some light at the end of the tunnel. Oh, yeah. It was nice. It had a sunroof, electric sunroof, and you know, it had a tape deck with a search button, so you could nice. skip songs on it. Nice. Yeah, that was pretty slick. I liked that. Probably yeah. had Dolby noise reduction, too, right? Huh? <laughs> Did it have Dolby noise reduction, too? Something like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah it had the... It was like some kind of... Cr- you hit a chrome button. Yeah, the chrome the button. The chrome button. I remember and, that. And all of a sudden, that it would just make it so much better. Yeah, and it, it, it was it was it was nice. Uh, it had uh, uh, Sirwin Vega six by nines in the back. Okay. And uh, so it had a little beat to it. Yeah. I liked it. And uh, boy, I drove that car just everywhere, everywhere. Yeah. Um, I was going back to Taylorville, going back to my old stomping grounds and, and, uh, visiting with friends. I was all over the place. I mean, just stacking on the miles, but moving forward, um, I now own, um, let's see, just bought my wife a 2005 Dodge Durango RT. Okay. It's got the five point five point four liter Hemi in it all-wheel drive <laughs> and that son of a bitch will grab and go i just i am just so thoroughly impressed with it i am not a mopar guy okay uh, yeah. this is the first mopar i've ever owned and you talk about throaty and powerful and it seats eight <laughs> holy cow <laughs> well i still i've still got a you know big family um because uh she has two from her previous marriage. I have uh, four from my previous marriage, and we just had a daughter. You got the Partridge family going on, uh, don't you? Just about. <laughs> it's, it's more like you know a, a modern day version of the Brady Bunch. Of oh, the Brady Bunch, yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. We we just don't have a maid yet. Yeah, you know? <laughs> I don't know if it's I could coming. ever ever have one living in, but uh, but um, that is the newest. Addition, uh, I've still got a 94 uh, Mitsubishi Mitsubishi 3000 GT SL. Okay. Which is just one package below the VR4. So I've got the, the big V6. Did it have the, I think the VR4 did all-wheel steering? It had all-wheel steering, all-wheel drive. Yeah. Um, it had a, a uh, speed-adjusting spoiler. Oh, no um, kidding. Oh, yeah. I didn't the know VR4 that. The VR4 is an amazing machine. Huh. And an absolutely amazing machine. It had a turbo V6 in it that could uh, came stock with like 300 and, 315 horse, which was 10 horses more than that year's Ford Mustang Cobra. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Um, and, and with all-wheel drive, it's going to go. Yeah. And with yeah. all-wheel drive, it would go. It would absolutely destroy 
a domestic uh, hot rod. Huh. I mean, it was it is just an amazing machine. I almost bought a Nissan. Um, what are they called? Three hundred ZX. I had a soft spot in my heart for a three hundred Z. Oh yeah. I back. And those are collectible now. Uh, this this was probably during somewhere during the mid span of my Porsche days, was it? Yeah. I almost I almost mm-hmm. made the move to to the three hundred Z because it yeah. was such it was sort of like um, an every man's exotic car. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really flat, really wide. Right. The fucking turbo was frighteningly oh, yeah. fast. Yeah. Frighteningly yeah. fast. It was nose to nose with that Toyota Supra. Yeah. Yeah, the Supra was out that same year. Actually, going out that same year, I think. Mm-hmm. And, I mean... Thankfully, I didn't buy one, though. Yeah. I would have been way in over my head with yeah. a with a 300ZX with the sort of money I made back then. Oh, yeah. It would have been the oh, wrong I, decision. Oh, yeah, I did that. Yeah. Uh, uh, it was 96 that I bought my first Mustang. Brand new. It was a GTS. Okay. So, it was the GT package. Well, it was the GT motor, and that was it. It was tape deck. Oh. It had manual windows. That's the, what the GTS was. It was like GT stripped. Okay. You know, it was nothing. It didn't even have a spoiler. Moonlight blue, beautiful color. Um, and I, I bought that in 96. It was 96 that I bought, April of 96. And I drove the wheels off that thing. You know, I, the, the car that I have out there now is the first brand new car I've ever bought. Never bought a, a car off a lot. Really? Ever. Ever, ever, ever. Wow. Didn't actually, I actually railed against it for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously the front-loaded cost of buying it, you know, oh, the, yeah. the loss you take. I mean, as soon as you... If, if you plan on keeping it for long term, buying a new car is great. But mm-hmm. if you're a, if you're a, a one or two year, one and done sort of thing and you're off to a different car, yeah, it's very expensive to own a car like that. Oh, yeah. Unless you go into like a lease, but then... That's that's dicey, painful anyways. too. Yeah, that's painful too because you don't ever have any equity in that. Right, and then you go over your mileage, blah blah blah. Yeah, it. But uh, but yeah, I've got, I've got the Mitsubishi, and then, um, I got the cars that I bought for my kids. They're nothing. Um, but then there's the love of my life. Uh, here it goes. And I have a '97 Mustang Cobra. Yeah. That is all original. Okay. Every single piece of it is still original, and it only has seventy-four thousand miles on it. That's all right. And I I I came across it by complete accident because uh, in the first part of my life where I was trying to figure things out, I was a Schwann's man. I delivered food, and mm-hmm. I did that for six and a half years, just spinning my wheels. I didn't know what to do with my life. Um, I had I had gone to school to be an electrical engineer. And when you're trying to go to college and you've got a family, I mean, a full-blown family, wife, two kids, you're trying to support them, mm-hmm. full-time engineering school, I hit burnout, clinical burnout. I yeah. saw a doctor. He's like, you're done. He goes, there is no way that you are going to be able to continue being a student and do all of this. Mm-hmm. And I was in my junior year. Ouch. Yeah, ouch. So here I have all this education. I had even worked for, I was working for the Department of Defense. I was a test and evaluation specialist for the F-18G, the growler that everybody just loved because it could fly through a, a, a hot zone and uh, smoke every communication system. Okay. It just with whatever they armed it with. It had no guns. 
It could not carry a missile, but it'd fly through a hot zone and it would smoke all communications <laughs> and tracking devices. So they couldn't fire a missile at it. Nothing. It was it was really cool. That'd be that'd be the job I want. I'd want to fly that. Oh yeah, exactly. I'd want to that, fly that. Yeah, you know, you'd almost wish that it was like being in a video game where you flew over a hot zone. You just all of a sudden put out this radar and you see stuff kind of like popping like ants under, you know, in the sunshine. But um, yeah, I was working on that and I was getting ready to go into future combat systems. A lot of the stuff that you see now, where the guns can see around a corner or shoot around a corner that kind of stuff mm-hmm. I mean, that's what future combat systems were, was and when I graduated that's where I was going to go um, but things didn't work out that way right so six and a, six and a half years as a Schwann's man uh, I'm crushing it I have 1100 customers in four counties and I'm working 14 hour days five six days a week that's rough and yeah it was rough but I made it I made it work Mm-hmm. And um, I was getting ready to say my goodbyes. I knew that it was time to move on. I, I had an accident. I had a brain injury. Um, I tried coming back, and it hurt, physically hurt. Yeah. I could not do it anymore. I had to change things up. Um, so I came back and said my goodbyes to all my customers. And this wonderful couple in Bunker Hill, um, uh, they always traded stories with me about their son's Mustang because I love Mustangs. Saying goodbye. And uh, the old man, Terry, he's like, hey, I want, I want to show you something. He's in his 80s. And I was like, oh, well, okay. I, I don't have a lot of time, but I'll, I'll make time for you. And we make our way out to his garage. And he pulls open the second garage door. I'd never seen him open this one. And there is shit from bottom to top. I mean, just shit stacked. Quarter style. Huh? Hoarder style. Hoarder style, exactly. Yeah. But you look right through the middle of it, and there was a blue tarp. I was like, son of a bitch, no. I said, there is no way that there's a car underneath all this. And he's like, yep, there's a car underneath all this. It's the Mustang. I was like, I thought you... He had bought this 97 Cobra for his son because he graduated at the top 10 at U of I. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what a, what a gift. I mean, you bought a brand new Mustang Cobra for your, their only son and gifted it to him. Well, he did not know how to drive it, and he blew up the motor in it. Oh, Jesus. This gets better. So he blew up the motor in 2005. It turns out that the uh, Cobra motor in the 97 was put in the 2005 Mach 1. So the, the parts are interchangeable. are interchangeable. Boosted the horsepower on this 97 Cobra stock. It still qualifies as stock. Wow. Because the porting is different. But all of it matches. So it went from, he didn't dyno it, but it is not 305 horse. Okay. Because I can clear the quarter in it in 13.1. Yeah, and that's quick for a stock. Yeah. So anyhow... Uh, he's like, uh, he's like, I got to get this out of my garage. I'm thinking about selling it. Um, I want you to have it. I was like, Terry, I, I can't do this. You know, this, I'm changing careers. My, my income is going to drop in half, you know, cause I was going to become an electrician and apprentice electricians don't make shit. You're right. But it was, it was the step I had to take. And he goes, don't worry about it. He goes, get it out of my garage. 
He, it was Memorial Day weekend. He goes, I'll pull it out. He goes, I'll air up tires, put a tank of gas in it, and all this. You drive it. You have the wife drive it. We'll work something out. Okay. Come back that weekend. Get in it. And I was like, oh, my God, this thing smells new. And he goes, well, yeah, it, it is. He goes, I have a bad hip. When we put the new motor <laughs> in it in 2005, he only put 900 miles on the new motor. Oh, boy. So here I had this brand new motor, brand new clutch. It was a two-stage clutch, uh, hydraulic still and all that, and real heavy, real heavy in the clutch. And he, uh, wife and I, we get in it. He goes, hey, do me a favor. I was like, what, Terry? I'll do anything for you. He goes, do a burnout for me. Oh, no shit. And I was like, you're shitting me. Brand new Goodyear's on this, on this car, nice and wide. And I was like, are you sure? And he goes, oh, yeah. This guy's a cutthroat salesman. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he, go, he goes, he, he's like, give it all you got. He wanted that car gone. He wanted that car gone. <laughs> and and I, I said, I said you, want, you want a third gear chirp? And he goes, yeah, if you can do it. So I got out there, uh, uh, out on his street. And it nice and long, long enough. And kind of, you know, you, you kind of look down. You're making sure everything's cool and copacetic, right? Yeah. And first gear, super short. And I just light them. I mean, they just go so fast. I see the smoke roll. I'm like, all right, here we go, second gear. And I hit that second gear, I mean, just so hard. And it kept rolling. I was like, oh, am I going to do this? And I did. I sure as shit. I got the third gear chirp out of that son of a bitch. And I was like, oh, yeah, we're gone. We were gone all day. And I came back, and that car was mine. Yeah. You know, there was just no ands, ifs, or buts about it. And uh, I'll tell you what. Those were the most trusting people in the world because they wrote up a contract where I paid them a total of twelve one hundred dollar payments a year, not monthly payments. I only had to make twelve one hundred dollar payments a year, so I could go. I I was so poor sometimes that I couldn't make a payment. Yeah. But then, like two three months later, you'd say, "Oh, I I've got three hundred dollars." Came into the money up. and yeah. And uh, I did that with them for three years until I could afford to hand them a check for the balance on it. Now, get this. He only wanted enough money for the cost of the motor. Oh, wow. Yeah. So here, you know, 97 Cobra, and uh, I bought it for $3,500. That's yeah. That is that is, like that is, the, that the is the dream. That's the story. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, the story. that's the one, like... That those are the stories that we all think of. Mm-hmm. Few of us have experienced. Yeah. And most of us, we get that car that we fall in love with like that. Yeah. And eventually something happens in life and we part with it. And then years, mm-hmm. years later, we'll be like, yeah, I remember this one time I had this one car. And you reminisce and you sort of kick yourself for not figuring out some way of keeping it. Congratulations right. for being the dude that kept it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll tell you what, it, it's been hard. Um, because, but having that car has, uh, has helped me make some decisions. Sure. Um, because of the equity in it, mm-hmm. because I don't drive it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think last year I put maybe a thousand miles on it. I changed the oil because it's old. Right. Um, and I mean, it's got cups under the wheels so they don't get flat spots. Gotcha. But, um, that car has allowed me to make investments. Mm-hmm. I take the equity in it. I go to the bank. And say, hey, I got this. This is what I want to do. And they're like, okay. And they write a note against the car, and I'm able to make a few changes, you know, or save my ass, you know, mm-hmm. when things get kind of tight. Uh, 
because I mean, things happen. Oh boy! And Do that. It's just like, how am I going to get past this? And I would threaten to sell the car because I've had I had one guy offer me fourteen thousand dollars for that car. Of course. And I was like, oh. No, I can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it appraises at that. And I'm sure that he, he had cash for it. But I was just like, nah, I can't, I can't do that. And so, but it's, yeah. it's funny that you have a story about like that. Like the car was a certain investment that mm-hmm. allowed you some financial mobility. Yeah. Cause I have the same story with my first house I ever bought. Oh. Cause I bought it so cheap. Um, my ex and I, Jessica, were living in housing in Gillespie, raising our daughter, and we got a dog. <laughs> you know what you can't have in housing? A dog. A dog. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it was a cute little apartment. Actually, when we, when we first moved into it, uh, we were uber poor, like crazy poor. We were like couch surfing, kind of. I was at SIU, and I was being... She was staying with a friend, and then her and her friend fall out, and then she moves in with me in in my apartment in SIU, which you can't do, because mm-hmm. um, it was uh, what are those apartments called? Lake something. Um, oh, they they call it Cougar Village. Cougar now. Village, that's uh, what it is. I think it was called Tower Lake. Yeah, yeah. I had an apartment the there with a couple of Indians, do Indian dudes. So mm-hmm. my apartment smelled of 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 um, curry, curry and turmeric, <laughs> strong. Oh yeah. Um, which was my first exposure to um, to uh, that culture. Yeah. Anyway, um, so she falls out with the, with her friend. Um, she and and Sydney, my daughter. Um, this is you know this is when we were young and we hadn't solidified like living together and all that sort of stuff. We we're still being kids. Um, move in with me at Cougar Village. Yeah. Right, a baby. Right. Um, right. And. So that didn't last very long, and I think we're figuring things out from there, and we managed to land an apartment um, in Gillespie in housing, and the, of course it was super cheap. It's income-based. Right. Um, we had nice things, and the apartment was clean, so our apartment was tidy. Like, yeah. Um, in spite of being in housing, it was a nice place to live. Yeah. And the neighbors, I mean, the neighbors were fine. I don't think we had anybody that was particularly dangerous. There was this one old ratchet gal that would walk around with a water bottle full of gin all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or <laughs> I think it was gin. Whichever booze you can drink in doesn't really smell. Um, and it's clear. So, like, you can't, oh, like, yeah. she'd be hammered. And, lightning. <laughs> yeah, she'd be hammered. And, and, like, the evidence was minimal except the fact that she was slurring her words. Right. Um, so that was a, the one really weird oddity that we had there. Um, but then, you know, I'm a working type guy. It's not like I was just going to milk the fact that I had cheap rent. I went out and worked and so did she. And before long, we were spending as much on rent because it's income based. Right. As the whole little complex we lived in. Just our apartment cost that oh, wow. much. Yeah. Because they raised our rent because our income went up. And then... We had a little girl. Of course we wanted a fucking dog. Right. Right? Exactly. I'm a dog guy anyway. I grew up with a dog. So we get a dog, which was dumb, um, but he was worth it. And um, and we're being evicted. And so we, I was looking through the M&M journal <laughs> and found a guy selling a house for $15,000. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it was worth that. Yeah. <laughs> it was not a nice house. Um, but I called the guy, met him, went and looked at it, and it was a total dump. But... It was going to be my dump, and um, I didn't have the money for the down payment. 
the bank was going to give me a loan. They approved me. I had a good rapport with the bank, but I was only ever bought cars and shit like that. Right. And never of that, never a, a quantity of money that much. And the guy selling the house increased the price to 17000 which I could still get a loan for. And he gave me $2,000 out of his pocket for the down payment. So oh, wow. the net result is he gets the $15,000 for the, for the house mm-hmm. because that money just passes straight back to him. Right. Um, and um, I hope that's not something illegal. I'm talking about it. <laughs> it is the statute way past yeah. the fact that statute of limitations. You, yeah, yeah. It's 20, 20 years ago. Yeah, nobody's um, concerned about that right uh, now. <laughs> hopefully not. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. Um, but yeah, so he gave us he gave us the down payment so we could get the loan and we bought the house fifteen thousand dollars, and buying a house that cheap, our payments were like one hundred thirty dollars a month. Yep. And um, and we renovated it out of our pocket. We didn't run out and get another big loan. We did get a loan after a while because redoing a kitchen and a bathroom, both were severely in need, is too expensive to do out of your pocket, making the sort of money that we were making back then. And so most of the renovation, 80% of the house, we redid out of pocket, which means we kept that payment at $130 a month. Nice. And we lived in it for 15 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. I put solar on it and everything. I oh. expanded the square footage from 1,000 to 1,400 square foot. Put a three-car carod, three-car carport, and a wraparound porch in the house. Like we transformed it. That is put four awesome. kilowatts of solar on it. When at the time that I moved out of it, before I bought this house, I can pay and and I paid it off too, so I didn't have a mortgage payment. Right. And I had solar. I could pay an entire year's worth of bills, communication, cell phone, electricity, all bills for about five thousand dollars. Nice. And I made that in a couple months. That's cool. Yeah. That's like living the dream there. Except growing up the way I grew up and probably the way you grew up as well and the struggles that I went through, when you take and you create a certain amount of financial freedom Mm -hmm. like that did, it's a motherfucker on your motivation. Much of my motivation up until that point in my life was, was out of pressure. Right. Pressure. Constant pressure. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. Right. What happens when we remove the got tos? You get complacent. Lazy. Yeah, complacent. I played golf a lot, uh, which was okay. No golf. <laughs> no, oh. I liked golf. It was uh. good back then. Um, but yeah, I, I, I played golf, and I was I, I had already started my business, so I had my own clients going, but I wasn't uber motivated, and it was a weird spot to be in. We would, you know, I'd, if I didn't have anything going on that week, like I would just not go to work. I'd hang out with the family. So it was sort of a feeling of being like semi-retired. Yeah. Um, I'm, now when I bought this, all that changed. Right. Everything went back to the t- sort of prior status of yeah. got to, got to, got to. Because right. this is, you know. You want to maintain that gap um, between financial freedom and, oop, shit, I'm one, I'm one payment away from like losing it. Yeah, you know, <laughs> that's, that's a really good point. Yeah. yeah. Once, you, once you know what that feeling is like. Um, the pressure is good. The pressure is good. They call it um, raising your financial thermostat. Okay. Um, that's sort of the, I have a friend in the real estate business. That was a term that they used um, when you take and you, um, and actually it's a Gary V term as well, if you know who Gary Vanderchuk is. Um, sometimes people advocate going out and buying something really expensive mm-hmm. because it adds pressure and pressure equates to motivation to some people. So, you know, there, there's a philosophy out there. There are people who have bragged about going out and buying a Lamborghini because it was super expensive and it'd be really tough to afford. 
and hmm. that and that was their motivation and that you. that was a push man i, I don't it, know i for me personally i i don't need that you know mm-hmm. um not now i think i'm probably more motivated just by um by accomplishment you know i i don't yeah. i don't need a i don't need a physical possession anymore there's a handful of things um that i'm interested in having and the list is short Mm-hmm. very specific right then everything else can go to hell i don't care yeah, basically yeah <laughs> i don't care yeah. I, um, I i get i get that yeah um because my early motivations were like that you know you had to have you know a nice car and uh i was out to make a better life for my family mm-hmm. you know that was my motivation and Not, and never anything personal and did you in making a better life for your family the, the mistake i made because i was doing the same thing the mistake i made was too easily letting that be too easily defined by not necessarily my standards like my black porsche i had a i had a porsche 951 Yep. 87. Nice. Um, in very good condition. I bought it 80,000 miles on it, something like that, 70 some odd thousand miles on it. It was basically, in, for a Porsche, it was nearly new condition. It was oh, well yeah. kept. 951s and 944s. It's hard yeah. to find one that's that low. Yeah. Well, and this was years ago. Yeah. The car wasn't very old when I bought it. And um, I had that car for quite a while, loved it. Um, when we had my our second kid, Ian, mm-hmm. um, we needed better transportation. She had a Ford Contour that shit oh, those was were trash. total garbage. And um, it had started having problems. It was fine for a long time. And we had it for a couple of years probably, but then it started having problems and the problems didn't stop. Right. So we knew we need, we need to replace that. We wanted more space because now we had two kids and Sydney was getting to an age to where she's going to start going to school. The whole, the whole, um, idea of become a soccer mom you know, yeah. starting to float in you know uh, that sort of lifestyle is starting to float into our minds in, in terms of daydreaming mm-hmm. and um and i had the porsche and uh i had some other i think i had like a ford escort beater car that i drove for my work car right and um yeah i took both the contour and the porsche to a dealer traded them both off and got a fucking minivan oh traded yeah. it yeah, that that was my one that I let go. So I'm 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 that stereotypical jack off who who <laughs> you know I did it for the right reasons though. Oh you know? yeah, and I mean you know, we were able to push a button and the van door popped out and, and open you know that nice. sort of stuff. So when she's carrying Ian, she could easily get him into the vehicle. Right. And, you know it was it was still the right move. Um, I can buy another one of those cars if I really wanted one bad enough. So it's neither here nor there. Um, but um. We didn't need that new of a vehicle. Mm-hmm. I think I spent twenty grand on it. I spent fifteen thousand dollars on the house. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> How's that for exactly. perspective? Oh. I... Um, and and eventually, like she hurt her back. She had she couldn't continue working. Our income got devastated. Fucking van got repossessed. Ooh. Yeah. And we had foreclosure notices served on us on the house. Like just ends were not meeting. Um, the thing is, is like I went from making a good living. Um, working for one company, but I wanted to expand my knowledge base and get better at doing what I right. 
do and they wouldn't give me the opportunity so I had to take a different job at a pay cut uh, probably about a 40% pay cut yep with her working we were able to do that when she lost her job we went from making together probably 50 60 grand a year combined to making 25 Oof. because her income's gone yeah and my income was reduced right and just ends weren't meeting yeah and um and yeah the, the bottom fell out and so um when i ask you know building a better life for you and your family i didn't figure out what my standard was until i suffered enough mm-hmm. and right. then i developed my own this is what's important to me right exactly um my standard was trying to keep up with the rest of my family okay um because i looked at you know my grandfather just crushed it mm-hmm. you know raising my 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 dad and uncles he was a lineman and i remember in the 80s i could ride along with him and i think i was maybe 10 so this is 1987 okay so i was riding along it was an outage and he told me to stay in the truck but i could i could hear them talking and all that and i remember somebody popping up and saying hey this is awesome we're making a buck a minute so it's 1987 wow. and they're on a call out and they're making 60 dollars an hour that's all right so and if it's if it's the same call out rules cuz i'm a union electrician now if it's same call out rules as as me, it's time and a half for call out. So mm. maybe they were making double time because you know it was a weekend because I was with him. So maybe they're making double time. So if you do a rough figure, just guessing, he was making thirty dollars an hour, forty hours a week mm-hmm. in nineteen eighty seven, and that's big money. I mean, you're talking uh, maybe he was maybe making over a hundred thousand dollars. Just on his in eighty seven in nineteen eighty seven, when gas was seventy cents a gallon, mm-hmm. and you could buy a house for ten thousand dollars, and it was amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, it, things were different. Um, so, you take that with he grew up in the depression, so he saved every single dime. Sure, he, he made investments. Um, he inherited a three hundred acre farm. Oh my god! Right. And he's farming at the same time as he's working as a lineman, four sons. And, I mean, my dad tells me stories about, you know, they would hop in the car and they'd drive to Yellowstone. Or they went on, you know, these very nice vacations once a year. You know, it was, it was the, almost the storybook life. The bar was set pretty high, wasn't it? It was set very high. And then uh, my dad... Um, Things were different growing up uh, because when my dad graduated high school, he started Hein Electric. Okay. And he did, I mean, almost every green bin that you see in the Gillespie, Dorchester area, my dad wired. So, you know, he was well known. Um, But then uh, the Reagan era started and everybody lost their jobs. I mean, it just plummeted. And he couldn't buy a job, so we ended up traveling a lot. Uh, but he always made sure we were provided for, mm-hmm. and we never felt as kids that we were struggling. Moving on into 
when my dad finally got hmm? so as kids so you never got a perception of tough times because i remember when i was little because we were hand to mouth mm-hmm. knowing what i know now we did okay but my dad was a carpenter and so he would be really busy nine ten months out of the year mm-hmm. and then the in the late fall winter and things wouldn't start back up until early spring. So winter was really tough. Like mm-hmm. times were lean during the winter time. And, um, I did get a perception, especially once I got to my teenage years that that's the realization. Yeah. When you come to realize that they were hard times. See, when I was young uh, and we're talking, you know, <laughs> I have a very good memory uh, and it blows my parents away. I can remember stuff from when I was less than two. Mm-hmm. Um, and the farmhouse that I was born in, you know, it blows my folks away that I can remember this stuff, but I can. And the hard times were the norm. Okay. So I, I don't, I don't look back as, as that all being hard. Okay. Um, it's just it, what it was. It's just the way it was. And yeah. I loved it. You okay. Know, I was happy. Interesting. Yeah. And so was my brother. And so was my sister. And when things did get hard, well, we were a family. Mm-hmm. I mean, would mom and dad be upset? Yes, they'd be upset. Would you, con- you know, console them? Yes. And that's what you did. Um, my brother and I were Irish twins. So we were inseparable. Mm-hmm. We went everywhere together. We had the same friends. We did the same things together. Um, so when we went through hard times, we had each other. And I, I mean, <laughs> put it into perspective, I moved 11 times in 13 years. You know. Wow. Yeah. Um, it, it was nothing to uh, expect around the Thanksgiving break that you were going to be moving to a new house. No kidding. Yeah, that's when they would move because it was a good time of year. It was cool. Yeah. Um, and it was a, a break from school. So you could actually leave school and get into another school and never miss a day of school. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so, and things were so volatile that I remember I was going to a Catholic school in Taylorville. And it was hard for me to go there because I was on a grant. You know, my parents still had to pay mm-hmm. uh, some, and it was hard for them to pay. But my mom went to St. Simon and Jude in Gillespie, and she wanted us to go to the Catholic school in Taylorville. Gotcha. Um, so they made it work. <clears throat> um, I always had jeans that were hemmed because mom would buy them long, mm-hmm. and she'd hem them up. Then they let them extend- out. Let them out. Let them out. Yeah. Or you wore out the knees. Correct. Or the crotch. I was a fat kid, so it was always crotch that went first. That sucked. Um, <laughs> uh, it was, I mean, it just That's some sucked. real shit right there, folks. It, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was the fat kid. Um, I, I, and, you know, I was going to school with uh, kids whose dads were lawyers and moms who owned businesses. Yeah. Um, and just, you know, really successful kids. And I, back then I called them friends, but we were more just like acquaintances because um, I don't, I was never invited to birthday parties, you yeah. know, 
Um, it wasn't until later in life that I found out a lot of them were in dance, tap. You know, some of them were, you know, supreme athletes. I'd played basketball, but I was a fat kid trying to play basketball. I was like, here, they're like, stand at the top of the key. Don't let anybody step. Preach. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, okay, yeah. well, you get, you know, a good stance and let them run into you. Um, but it was so bad. And dad's career was so volatile in the 80s that it was in fifth grade, fourth grade. At the end of fourth grade, they threw a party for me because we were going to be leaving. And it really touched my heart. I was like, oh, all right. Nice. You know, this is, this is not unexpected. And then um, the summer went. I spent most of my summer at my grand, grandfather's. And uh, the summer is almost over, and Dad didn't get the job. Mm. Um, and the reason I was staying at my grandfather's is because my parents couldn't afford food. Wow. So I, 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 lay, I, I stayed at the farm along with my brother and my sister. Hmm. You know, it was just a thing. You know, that's just what you did. You know, it didn't bother anybody as far as I could tell. Um, and it was an old farmhouse. Everybody, everybody was happy enough. Everybody was happy enough. Yeah. Uh, you worked your ass off. I mean, even in fourth grade, I was still carrying buckets of corn to go feed the cattle, and I was taking the slop out to the hogs. I was getting up in the hayloft and tossing down bales. You know, that's just what you did. Uh, but here's where it gets really messed up, is that I came back. I came back for fifth grade, and everybody's like, oh, you're here. We threw you a going away party. I was like, yeah, you know, it was really kind of a tough start getting back because, you know, here I spent the whole summer away from everybody. Everybody thought I was gone. Yeah. And I walk in and they're like, oh, you're here. Yeah, I'm, I'm here. You know, and you get through the fifth grade and then you have to tell everybody goodbye again at the end of the fifth grade because dad might have got another job, a better job. Uh, and it's, it isn't until a few weeks after that that you re- realize, oh, Dad didn't get the job. Here's another summer without my friends. You know, because everybody thinks you're gone. Nobody's in contact. You know, so you're, mm-hmm. you're kind of... It was kind of neat because I got to do different things. You know, you got bored and you got your ass kicked out of the house because your dad was working midnights. I know it was... Is it midnights? Second shift. He's working second shift because he'd be sleeping during the day yeah he needed to sleep yeah and he worked second shift every job he ever took for seven years holy so i didn't really get to know my dad while i was a kid yeah you know uh he was the guy that was home on the weekends and i absolutely love him i mean he everything that he ever did was just like that is phenomenal because he's a tinkerer yeah he'd always come up with neat cool stuff to build oh or you know um you know, we, we recycled wire and he built this little contraption that peeled the wire, you know, the insulation off of the wire. Mm-hmm. And so you didn't have to burn it. So you got more money for it. Okay. You know, but, uh, you know, it, it was a different kind of summer because your, your parents were working and, uh, your sister would go to a friend's house and that was kind of the babysitter for her. Mm-hmm. And me and my brother just disappeared. We'd hop on our bikes and be gone um i tell people about how often we rode our bikes 
we would change the tires every year because we wore the tread out. Wore the knobs off. We wore the knobs off. I mean, they were just bald every year. Yeah. And we couldn't afford new bikes, so we'd tear them down, put the bearings in them, mm-hmm. and paint them new tires. And this is what doing without my dad. Yeah. You know, he showed us once, you know, how to do it, but the rest was on us. And, you know, we, we painted our bikes and it looked like a new bike for the summer and off you went. And a lot of great stories come from that. And this podcast would not be long enough to tell all of them. It's just really cool. But the the point I'm getting is, is that everything was always so volatile that that was the norm. And you never considered that to be hard until you get a taste of the good life. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh, wow, this is so much easier than... before it, it's funny that you you phrase it that way because I never considered the fact that because my dad was a carpenter and he would be very busy and he mm-hmm. would make pretty good money during the summer and the spring and even in the fall that I guess I felt the hard times because I also felt the good times right but we when had you don't have the good times we had ebbs and flows and and that carries on to my life today mm-hmm. I think I've got a fairly this is going to sound like a sort of weird dichotomy, but a fairly unhealthy, healthy relationship with money. Even yeah. if I have millions and millions of dollars in the bank, I still won't feel like it's enough because I'm always going to feel like something could happen. Something I don't think I'll ever feel like I'm financially secure. So that's a good motivator. Yeah. But I also know that I can live without I can live with so much less than what everybody else seems yeah, to. I could lose everything and I'd be okay with it. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, short of obviously my kids and right. You know, and I, I have a different perspective on if you had a million dollars. Um, if I have a million dollars saved up, there's something wrong. Because, okay. Because money is work. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you're not rich when you have money. You you are rich when your money is working for you. Sure. So, uh, have I ever made it that far to even try to invest? No, never. I don't think I ever will. Um, because I've always got something going on. There's always something to do or <laughs> something that needs done. That's the phrase. There's always something. There's always something. Fill in the it, blank. Right. And, and I, I always exemplify that there are needs and wants. I use that phrase and, all the time. And you can, I, I, I use the, uh, I guess you could call it a metaphor. It's kind of like a story almost. It's like swimming. Um, when you swim, you, it's comforting, but you got to keep paddling. Mm-hmm. And you have to have the ability to hold your breath. Just every once in a while, you just want to dunk your head. And you dunk your head and you're like, oh, so cool. And you come up and take a breath just because you want to, you know, not that you needed to. I mean, you need air, but it wasn't to the point where you need it, where it was a must. So um, you get competitive and you're like, oh, I wonder how far I can go. How deep can I go? So you, you dunk your head, you go down, you go about five feet, come up and you're a little, you're a little breathless, but nothing severe. Yeah. You go 10 feet. Same, same difference, right? I've done 10 feet. I've done 12 feet. Um, and you're like, okay. You know, you're a little breathless when you come to the top after 12 feet. You're like, but I wonder how far I can go. 
you know, you want to go further. Mm -hmm. You want to see, you know, where is my limit? Okay. So you swim, you swim so deep that you are exhausted at the bottom. And now your want for air is a need. You need air. Sure. The struggle is at the bottom, not at the top. You see what I'm saying? I do. I mean, you are so deep in your want to go further. That the basics. That the, that the basic need has been ignored and you need to get to the top. That's an interesting. And you need to take a breath. That's a super interesting observation. Yeah. Of, well, this is hard learned. Both yeah. physically and uh, metaphorically. Yeah. Because I learned it. Uh, I'll, I'll get to the end of it. So you're, you want, your want becomes a need. And that's where you want to be. That the want is a necessity. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you want your necessities. You don't want your bullshit. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't, you don't want what's easy. You want what's hard and what is necessary. So you're at the bottom and you want it so bad that it becomes a need and you work to the very top to get what you need. And when you've come to the surface, you take that breath. It is the same breath you took before, but this time it, it feels, feels better. a lot better. Yeah. And you feel accomplished because your want pushed you to your limit. Sure. That's to the very bottom. And you came to the top. But guess what? You push through your, your walls. Yeah. You push through your limitations. And you go for what's deeper. And, you know, that, that's what drives me is that not every want is a need. Mm-mm. Not every want. You know, you could want an ice cream cone. Too easy. I want to deadlift 600 pounds. Do I want that ice cream cone? No. I need to deadlift that 600 pounds. So wanting that ice cream cone is bullshit. Yeah. It's not, it's not going to help me any. It's not going to help me get to my goal. And that 600 pounds that I'm going to deadlift is well beyond my current limitation. Mm-hmm. So I've got to make it past. And the only way to make past is to cut back on some of the wants cut back on some of the easy little bullshit and work towards your needs. Yeah. There's, um, there's a, a couple of things I'll say to expand on that idea. One is there's, there's a guy by the name of, um, well, he's, he's passed on now. His name was, um, professor Posh. He was famous for, for doing what's called the last lecture. And, um, the last lecture is basically, I won't, uh, spoiler alert! I think everybody should watch it. It's it's a phenomenal message about um, how to live life and how to live it well. But anyway, he would talk about the walls, mm. okay? And he would just say very simply, and there's a lot of meaning behind this very simple sentence. So feel free to let it sink in. The walls are there to keep everyone else out, mm-hmm. right? So if you don't have if you don't have what it takes, if you don't have the mental fortitude, the physical fortitude, the the stick it with itness to to overcome an obstacle, then that wall is your wall. It's not everybody's wall. Right. And that's for each of us to determine on our own. Um, I've broken through so many walls in my recent fitness journey. I don't even know where I I, I just don't even know what to think about them anymore. Um, I'm doing things that I wouldn't. 
that I wouldn't have thought was possible. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then the other thing that I would say, um, particularly about the whole want thing, is desire. Uh, there's another guy by the name of um, Naval Ravikant, okay. who is um, he's an entrepreneur and honestly, I, a modern day philosopher, if you ask me. He was on the, the JRE and um, and then. I learned from him. I learned about who he is through the Joe Rogan show, but then followed up and listened to his to his podcast and tried to absorb um, information he's putting out there in multiple ways. And he refers to wants um, and desires as social contracts with yourself um, okay. in trade for being unhappy until you get that result. Oh. And yeah. so we should be very aware of our desires and our wants because they, they may not be worthy of our unhappiness in the, in the acquisition of that thing. So for me personally, there are many things I would like to have. Um, uh, one of which I, I'm a cyclist. I've got a nice bike. I'd like to update it. Okay. Two thousand, two thousand to three thousand dollars is probably what I would need to spend to get something that's solidly better than what I have now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not willing to make that social contract with myself to be unhappy until I do that. What I have now fills my needs, right? And um, the want is far outside of what I'm willing to spend of of my own time and and um, mm-hmm. you know because. Like you, we talked earlier about how um, money equals work. Yes. So um, what am I willing to trade my time for? Right. Am I willing to trade my time for a new bike? Not right now. Yeah. <laughs> Not even close. Yeah. Not even close. There, and and um, for young people who are listening to this, um, which I hope that there are um, some, we think when we're young in terms of money and money in terms of what possession that thing can buy. Right. After you've burned your fucking candle for so long, it stops being about money and it starts being about time. time. And what what am I trading my time to gain? And that's that's actually exactly why I'm selling this house. Mhm. is because this house is not worth the time I'm trading to own it. Right. It's, maintenance. It's and, and maintenance. And it's just, I am a waste not, want not type of person. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of waste in this house. It's too big for two people to live in. Right. It's not too big for, I mean, you can very effectively live in this house. But you can justify it if you really wanted to. Sure, yeah. But I mean, it, it's the effort of justifying I'm it. I'm living in 35 to 40% of the house. Yeah. Which means 65, 60 to 65% of the house is just unutilized. Right. I still have to pay for all of it, though. Right, exactly. <laughs> I still yeah. have to heat and cool and maintain and all that other bullshit. Right. And I could do it, uh, I could do with a third of the size of yeah. this. And, and Happily, by yeah. the way. And then I have to trade less of my time just for the simple possession of the house. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I was really hoping that COVID would give us, would, would do a reset of people's perspective to where more people are seeing things the way I see them now. 
Mm-hmm. I didn't come to this realization last week. I've been here for a couple years now, particularly after the divorce. I said, what the fuck? Right. You know what I mean? Like, what? why am I doing all of this again? You know, mm-hmm. I'm divorced. The family sort of... You go you, through that mind fuck. Certainly, yeah. It's severe. And I, the, I went through it too. And the thing is, had my had my marriage stayed in con and and um, together, right? The family would have the 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 the, the nuclear family would have stayed more intact, yes. and this house would have made more sense, right? But my daughter's adulting now, so mm-hmm. she doesn't live at home anymore. She's twenty two, so good for her. Um, it's really cool watching your kid adult. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ex is she's moved on. She's she's living quite a good life um and that's wonderful um i'm still stuck here paying for all this shit and um so that ship has sailed right um i don't want to trade my time for that anymore right not at all um i would rather just earn more money and have more money in the bank and and have the ability to reinvest in things that i care about Mm -hmm. you know that's what i'd love to spend my time on yeah yeah you know um i i rented for a long time yeah um, and I had a landlord that what just had a lot of respect for my ex-wife. Uh, she did a lot of volunteering for Boy Scouts, a lot more than I did. Mm-hmm. I was a I was a scoutmaster, but she was a cub master. I think I knew something about that. It was it was a good time. Mm-hmm. It was a nice little part of my life that I just treasure. Was it out of Gillespie? Yes, that it was you're out doing of Gillespie. that. Uh, but she was a Cub Master, and she had an impact on a lot more people than I did. Because in Cub Scouts, it's real easy. It's it's a lot of kids. Uh, I think at one time we had 80. So you're talking about 80 kids that just thought she was the shit. Wow. Um, and it had an impact on people. So the landlord, when he found out we needed a better place, he's like, pick out a house. And we were just kind of perplexed. And we're like, what do you mean pick out a house? And he goes, pick out a house. I'll buy it. And you guys rent it from me no because, shit. because I could not, I didn't have the credit to, to buy a house. I, I had transitioned jobs and all these collections and, you know, the things that go to shit that really wreck your credit. So, yeah, you know, I'm sitting there with a 640. You need a 650 to make a basic loan Dude, on a house. At 640, you're balling compared to what I. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I remember when it was just. I was in, I remember student loans getting ready to garnish my wages because I was just so piss poor. Yeah, um, I, I think I saw low fives, if not high fours. It, yeah, I think I was like, I don't know if I made it in the fours. I didn't pay attention. I was too scared. But um, he he bought the house that she she picked out, and we walked through the house. And it was a piece of shit on the inside. The previous owners had two big black dogs that shit everywhere. Oh, it was just so disgusting, but it looked great on the outside. It was a 50s style bungalow that had been bricked over, nice dark brick, and then they had added on this like bachelor area. I called it the second living room. It had a bar and, you know, uh, these long windows that went from floor to ceiling. That's cool. And it had its own uh, heating and cooling down there, fireplace big wide set of steps that transitioned from the living room to the lower living room that we called it. And then it went into the insulated two car garage. Sounds like a nice joint. Yeah. Well, my wife threw it at him as like kind of a bullshit move. Like, Oh yeah, this one's in foreclosure. I want this one because it looked, she was calling his bluff. Yeah. She was calling his bluff. He bought it and uh, then he renovated it. 
He was asking her what floors to put in it, what color she wanted the walls, all of this stuff. Now, mind you, we negotiated as all this went along what the, what the cap was for rent. Uh-huh. So I established the cap. He established how much he was going to invest, and it was a lot. And for, I forget how long we were in that house, four years, we lived like kings. Wow. Because I was, I was paying a decent amount of rent on this gorgeous house, and... Um, I had every plan to buy it, but my, my marriage dissolved. Mm -hmm. Um, there was some point in along the line, along the way that the mindset changed for what we wanted in a relationship. Sure. And, um, I won't go into detail. It's just not worth it. Yeah. Um, but we, we parted ways. Uh And the house that I was in just didn't make any sense. Here I had the kids. um, But as big as that house was, it was a small three-bedroom. That place was meant for something completely different. Mm -hmm. It was meant for people that were social. Uh, I didn't need two living rooms. I I didn't need this huge walk-in kitchen. I needed... Utility. Yeah. Yeah. And so walked away from it and things change. Um, I remarry and now I'm back to a a family that's almost twice the size that I'm used to. Mm -hmm. So you got to find a place. So uh, I bought a uh, 19, what year was it? 1908. uh, what, Queen Anne Victorian home yeah on two lots in Gillespie and it's the only I think it's like the only house that was for sale that had four bedrooms and I needed every single one of them I mean huh. I, I've got kid. I've got two kids in I got two boys in in two bedrooms and then the daughter <laughs> surprise daughter surprise surprise yeah vasectomy uh, and uh hey dude. they reverse themselves over time Oh my god! (laughs) Yeah. How how old were you? Uh, see, she's two. I was forty-one. Damn. Forty-one. I'm starting over. Damn, dude. Like, oh, and the coolest part about it is, is that I had four boys with Kim, and they're phenomenal, and they we spaced them out almost perfectly because you had Michael. Uh, and then two years later, you had Quentin. And then two years later, okay. you had AJ. And then Lucas is the odd. It was three years okay. for Lucas. <laughs> and he's the odd one. But it's cool the way it all worked out because you got you, you got almost two generations. Yeah. You you got you got the uh, I think Michael, the oldest, is a millennial. And then you have Lucas, who is this newest generation. What do they call it? Gen Z. I guess. And, and you can tell the difference because Michael is, he was born in 96. So that makes him, what, 24? Holy cow, yeah. Is that right? Ooh, 20. 22? 22. Sydney was 90. No, uh, no, 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 yeah, yeah, 24. So Michael, Michael is 24. Yeah. So my oldest is 24, and my youngest son is going to turn 15 this fall. And then I have a two-year-old daughter. That's amazing. And it's just like, oh, wow. You know, 
I've had to contemplate this possibility. Yeah. Well, it happens because the thing that they tell you is that, Hey, this is going to last forever. You know, I'm going to, they, they do the surgery and they're I'm, like, I'm going to take out a little extra. I'm going to sear the ends. Your shit is never going to work again. I've not even had the surgery. Yeah. Huh? I've not even had the surgery. You haven't even had the surgery? No, dude. I'm I'm oh. I'm coming in hot. <laughs> <laughs> it's a well, real worry. Uh, it, yeah, it, it, well, kind it, of. It is I mean, it's, I'm I'm you know I'm not a dummy. So yeah. Well, I, I, I do am, the things I need to yeah, do. I've got, I'm the one with all the kids. Right. Um, it was just too much fun. Why quit now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Whoops. <laughs> Whoops. Sorry. Um, but uh, long story short. Uh, when they tell you that they do the surgery and they tell you, oh, yeah, you did all this shit. Not they don't so much. tell you that the more often that you keep using your shit, the, the more that all that equipment down there wants to work like it's supposed to. So oh, it makes oh, extra boy. efforts to make that connection. And it will make the connection. Ooh, so um, I bet that was an interesting talk when, you're, when your wife comes back and says, Mike. Well, we were just dating. Oh, we, she, she had just came out of a marriage. I had just came out of a marriage. We are ready. Her, her sons are, uh, at the time they were, the youngest was, I think six and 12, you know, the, you know, so they're school age, easy to do, you know, um, they have a loving father. So it doesn't, it wasn't like I had to fill in a gap. Mm-hmm. It's just that their marriage dissolved, um, and we were ready to have our fun. I was, re- oh, yeah, I, I was ready to buy a, a much smaller house because I had ideas uh, of travel. Two sons and, that had already moved out. Yeah, uh, one was in the military. One has a career, uh, and then I, my third son was getting ready to go to college. You know, so it was just going to be me and my youngest son. Yeah. And I was going to get a smaller place. I was going to do the Harley, you know, I was going <laughs> to do the whole midlife crisis bullshit. Right. And, um, you know, I had quit scouts, you know, uh, the ex-wife and I, we had both quit scouts Yeah, and, um, uh, I was ready to just do things for myself. I'd spent so many years doing things for other people and cheers to that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I never got to that point. Um, uh, we had fun thinking that we were safe and turns out that, you know, I found out a few things about my ex-wife that, that she had just learned herself. You know, the, the whole reason that my ex-wife never got pregnant is because she had a condition that made her sterile after our last son. Yeah. So you had this. 15 year gap where we didn't know exactly when my shit started working again. Oh boy. Because she could never conceive. Wow. So, so then I start dating thinking that my shit is fine and dandy. Right? Yeah. No yeah. worries. No worries. <laughs> hey, let's do this. You know? And, uh, no, <laughs> we were, uh, very surprised and we were both in a really deep, dark hole. Uh, almost self-destructive and mm. then we find out that she's pregnant and it was the most joyous feeling yeah it's like we're given a new start yeah you know, god blessed us with this 
life that is going to completely change us and go through the pregnancy and it was a hard pregnancy for her and I had to make a lot of big changes and uh, it worked out it worked out really well yeah that's uh, early on when my ex and I parted ways we were in really good terms with one another mm-hmm. and even like to the point of being able to joke around and, and, and all that sort of stuff and yeah. and she was kind of goofing on me like because she had had um, she had sort of gotten herself sorted out to where she didn't have those concerns anymore mm-hmm. and she's like you realize that I'm okay moving forward you're the one with the worry and I was like oh my oh, god yeah. like the, the, the realization hit me for the first time like that's that's something I have to consider now right and I don't know what to do with that information besides I just, you know, have to take certain precautions. Hey, and It's worth the spread eagle, man. Just lay yourself, you have to lay yourself out, spread eagle for that doctor. Oh, oh, sure, <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, I mean. And you can watch. Yeah, probably. It, it's worth it. Probably need to get that sorted out. Yeah. But I have found the possibility, I wouldn't rule out the possibility of, of one of the reasons I wanted to have kids young Mm-hmm. Is because I wanted my kids to be able to enjoy um, a a a dad who can be active with them. Yep, um, I agree. That plan worked marvelously. Yeah. Um, I said, I understand that we'll probably be poor, but we'll be poor when the kids are young, and hopefully we will be less poor when the kids are less young. And so, you mm-hmm. know, that the the way they evolve will work will work fine. Right. Not that I want to have another kid at 43, but if I found the right person, I don't think I'd rule it out, especially in my present condition, mm-hmm. because I am more youthful than I am that, you know, I'm easily like biologically in my 20s. Yeah. You know, as when I was 25, I wasn't doing the things I'm doing today. Right. Um, and I know how to live well now. Mm-hmm. Back then, I didn't know how to live well. I fucking ate like mac and cheese and hamburger helper. You oh, know yeah. What I mean. Yeah, I just ate total it shit. Like so good though. <laughs> it, it, the, the taste is fantastic. I agree. I still have all my fat guy tendons, tendencies. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. I still want to go to Jack in the Crack and get, um, you know, like eight tacos and and eat them while I'm driving on the way home. Yeah. Sort of. Just this. I just have all those tendencies still. Mm-hmm. There's M and M's in the house, right now. Oh, I can't do that. Right now, there's M and M's in the house, and you know who's not eating them. This guy. Yeah, I don't buy it. I'm, it, I'm hard. It. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm. Now, I did have an incident about uh, 10 days ago where that, that bag of NMs lost half of its volume oh. <laughs> <laughs> because of this guy. Yeah. And then I said, damn it, I've, I've got to do a sugar purge. And I haven't really, I haven't had any, I haven't had any artificial sugars like that, any like hardcore sugars since mm. that day. So about 10, 10 days clean. Um, but, um, but yeah, I could consider it. I could, you know, it would take an, uh, it would take an amazing person oh, for yeah. sure. Um, I wouldn't do that for hardly anybody, yeah. obviously. Um, but the real, the possibility is there and I think I still have plenty left in the tank. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, at, at this age, we, you know, you and I are kind of on the same journey mm-hmm. you know, as you speak. It's like, oh yeah, I could, I could, I could relate to that. I did something similar. But like I said, this this podcast could not this this episode you know could not cover every single story. Yeah. But um, 
in relation to our age and youthfulness, the it's kind of like a second coming. You have your second chance at life. That's how I see it right now because uh, I grew up Catholic. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom's Catholic, and she grew up a hard Catholic. And I went to Catholic school. I was an altar boy. I served with the bishop twice, once upon request. You know, I was really into the Catholic religion. Um, but my dad is Lutheran. So every once in a while, we'd go to the Lutheran church. And it was referred to as Catholic light. It was almost the same thing, but you got a little more out of the scripture. Okay. Um, uh, but as things evolve, and as you thirst for knowledge, okay. you want that uh, intellectual property. You want to be worldly without having to travel the world. Or you can't travel the world, so you try to make yourself worldly. So I experienced other religions uh, or perspectives on uh, spirituality, Buddhism, and... You know what I'm reading right now? Huh? You know what I'm reading right now? What's that? The Bhagavad Gita. Oh, yeah? Yeah. yeah. Nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm about halfway through it. Um, I have uh, a couple of friends that are Buddhists from mm-hmm. Sri Lanka, and I met them as professionals. Uh, and, you know... Uh, they they out they surpass me now as far as career wise, but the the perspective they have on life itself is eye opening. Reason I bring all this up is that I learned that between knowledge and faith, I'll take faith uh, because when you start to listen to I call it the voice in the back of your head, some call it conscience. Some call it God. Uh, others refer to it as an energy, mm-hmm. you know, as a lighted path, an aura, whatever. I call it the voice in the back of my head. My dad calls it first inclination. Everybody has a name for it. It is God to me. Sure. It is God. And I, I say God because that's how I grew up naming a deity that has power over the universe. His name is God. Mm-hmm. He is the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus, you know, is my Redeemer. Um, and you can put that in any perspective of any any uh, religion. It's just the names that I use are the ones I grew up with. Okay, moving on. When it comes to going through this life, and trying to stick to your script that you write it's not always the one that it's in, that's intended for you uh, okay we're all cogs in a machine we all have an impact on each other whether it's just brushing shoulders or not brushing shoulders do you move out of the way for the stranger walking along the sidewalk or do you force yourself along the path that you set. Do you walk a straight line or do you walk around the people that are in front of you? Do you walk faster? Do you walk slower? Do you stay behind? We're all in intertwined and how you interact with that person even momentarily has an effect on their day or that moment or the chemicals in their body. Did they have an adrenaline rush or did they feel just for a moment that, Hey, somebody gave a shit and walked around me or, mm-hmm. you know, 
held held an old woman's hand across the street. These kind of things are so brief, but they have such an impact on an overall energy that you carry forward. Sure. So when I gave up on doing what I wanted to and establishing my needs, I started letting it flow. So rather than ignore my first inclination because what I set out to do, I was going to finish. Finish what you start and don't quit until then. No yeah. matter what it is. I set a goal, right? Mm -hmm. But what if that goal's wrong? What if the first inclination that you had was not to buy the Explorer, but to buy the Durango? You know, you don't know exactly why. All your research says that you should buy the Ford Explorer. I'm just using a car sure. thing because I'm a car guy. Right. Um, and it's easy. But you're like, eh, I really like that Ford Explorer. You know, it suits my needs. You know, really. But then you're like the Durango. And uh, you're like, okay, I'm going to go with the Durango because something tells me. My first inclination says the Durango is what I need to do. Mm-hmm. And then you get further on down the line, and you wanted the Explorer because that suited your need personally. That's sure. what I wanted. I set out to for my need, and that's what it was going to be. I, as a, as a family man, have to consider that my needs... <laughs> Are, are not secondary, are maybe. secondary sometimes. Yeah, that the needs of others are more important, and that's my wife. Mm -hmm. And I put my wife is the one that found the Durango, She's a real quiet woman, does not press. So I'm like, okay, go check out this Durango. And we drove three hours to go check out this Durango, and we get there, and she is in love with it. She sees it. It's gorgeous. And it... Done and done. Done and done. Yeah. Because it suits my needs. But what she needed was something different than mine. Yeah. So, rather than going with driving forward with my goal in the Explorer, you go to, you know, what feels better. You know, you go with this inclination that uh, you need to take a different route. Yeah, this it, sort of decision making is yeah, is tricky. Tricky, but you see, they're the same vehicle. They had the same bells and whistles and all-wheel drive and power. Yeah, it's just that the perspective was different. You you have to see it from someone else's perspective. It is it still meets all of your needs, mm -hmm. but it meets your needs and those of others. So this goes back to first inclination is best because we're, we're adult enough that experience speaks and some of it is, in, is just like Knowledge breathing. versus wisdom. Yeah. yeah. You, you, you make decisions so much quicker now that makes sense hmm. rather than stewing on, you know, how, how am I going to do this? You already know. So your first inclination is kind of like God saying, hey, you already know this. Go this way. Mm -hmm. And it's so hard to explain to some people. 
But when you go with your first inclination, you're not fighting yourself. Sure. You know, it's not impulsive. You can, you can, you can tell the difference between impulsion and, you know, when you're in a decision-making process and that first idea pops in your head, it's not wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I've found that to be true as well. I learned that a long time ago um, in my, when I took psychology back in the day that most of the time your first inclination, the, the vast majority of the time, your first, the first answer you come with is mm-hmm. usually the accurate one. Yeah. It is. Um, I think there's some something in the impulse of your mind that is a really good decision maker. I mm-hmm. think maybe it's evolution because, you know, if we wanted to not be killed by the cat, we had to decide <laughs> very quickly. Yeah. And so maybe maybe that that sort of um, quick decision making is actually pretty effective as a mm-hmm. result of you know just the manner for which we evolved. Mm-hmm. Um, although it has to be learned because I'm a better decision maker now than I was then. So. Right experience has to has to factor in there somewhere it factors into it yes yeah um but it's all guided that that's how i see it because you don't just start making decisions you know right off the bat uh it's like being kids and and touching something hot Mm -hmm. you know you wanted to touch it you know you don't know what hot is until you touch it boy yeah. yeah, you know, there's, you don't know what cold is until you hold the ice cube. You know, you don't know what pain is until you break your hand. Yeah, there's something you know. to be said for suffering. Yeah, I've always told myself that if I was in a position, if I could, like, from a work standpoint, if I went to hire somebody really good, mm. and I put out applications, and I find an applicant that a is um, got a good head on his shoulders, and um, doesn't really have any vices to speak of. And he's a skateboarder. Yeah, I hire him because that's somebody who knows how to suffer to get to a goal. Right, and that's that's inherently part of the whole skateboarding thing. Mm-hmm. Um, is that if 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 you're a skater, you're going to get hurt. Oh yeah, you're going to bleed. You're probably going to break something eventually. Like it's just part of the deal, and yet we still do it. Right. Um, so if I could, you know, find that guy who's a, a square peg, you know, uh-huh. you know, I'm not going to lose him to, to, he's not going to show up on a job drunk or high or something right. like that. Or yeah. he's or, got better things to do. Yeah. Then he would be, you know, that type, that personality type. And I would see any, any high achieving athlete as a potential in that same regard, because you can't be high achieving without a certain amount of work right. going into it. Um, yeah, there's something to be said for suffering. Oh yeah, for sure. Like yeah. I, I believe that wholeheartedly. It takes pain to retain. Boy. <laughs> yeah, the the best lessons I've learned are ones I've learned through my own experience. Mm-hmm. I do try to pay attention to other people's pitfalls. Yes. You know, it seems, it seems a waste to to look at someone else's hard learned experience, mm-hmm. and ignore it. Yep. Um happens a lot though i know like i have a very close friend right now that i i'm i've been in her position i've done the things she's doing i have tried to explain to her where the the soft spots in the plan are yeah and she's still powering forward gotta figure it out on her own yeah and And all you can do is support you know you just i mean it's hard to watch yeah yeah it is but uh as long as you're there to catch you know well, catch, and I say catch, and that's wrong. 
they have to hit. You mm-hmm. just got to be able to pick them up. You know, and that... This particular one is so headstrong that she, she'll only let herself be picked up. Or she'll only pick up herself. She'll only let her. As long as she's not doing it alone. Yeah. Whatever. I mean, it, it's tough. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I, it's, I've, I've met people like that. Yeah. And the, it's, those are relationships that you work on because they're so worth it. Yeah. I mean, I mean there, there is a lot of value there. Although, right. um, yeah. It's, it's the just, cost to you can be extensive. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, and you have to be able to step back and fill your cup because you, you can't pour into them from an empty cup. Yeah. Yeah. Those are, <laughs> those are, those are great words. And, <laughs> and, you know, that actually is, that's actually really, if there is any serendipity in us sitting down and, and having this conversation, dude, uh-huh. you got me, man. <laughs> <laughs> struck a nerve. I'm sorry. I, I, I uh, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's tough. Um, uh, it's uh, the, the one thing that I struggle with is friendships. Friendships sure. are really hard for me um, because I pour and I'll give you everything, every single drop. Yeah. And then I'll, be, I'll go beyond that. When I'm tired... And you're tired, I'll go with you. We go. Yeah. But there are so few people willing to give that back. Reciprocation is reciprocating is, is rare. Yeah. I mean, everything. Um, so I have not been able to keep friendships. Mm-hmm. Um, simply because when I'm tired and I need help, you're helping. Mm-hmm. And if you can't, then we're done. Right. I mean, because I gave you everything that I possibly could when you were just at your worst, when you just needed help and I gave you everything. And, and I, not too long ago, went through this and it, it, it was hard, mm-hmm. really, really hard. Um, when you can't give back or you won't give back, when you have washed your hands of the emotional equity. Yeah, been there. That, that, yeah. So you now, get to... Now when I give of myself, whether it's my personal self, yeah. my time and my effort or my attention, mm-hmm. um, or even money, it is a gift. Yeah. I have exactly. zero expectation of reciprocation. Um, when it does happen, I value it greatly. Yeah, um, but... I've been in that position to where I have, because I have a philosophy that if you can, you probably should. So if you, if you've been, if you've been put in a position, if you've been blessed such that, um, that you have the ability and you just willy nilly choose not to Mm. in, in the face of need, Mm. dick move, man. Absolutely. Dick move. Definitely not the energy you want to put into the universe. I don't think. Right. Because Um, it's like, rather, rather you're, whether you're God based mm-hmm. or uh, you believe in the theory of attraction or or karma or whatever it is, yes, there it's out there in a hundred different names, and it all says, "Put good into the world, and good will come back to you." Exactly. And give what you get, and you get what you give. Yeah, and so um, hence the philosophy: if you can, 
You probably should. Yes. I say probably because there are people who will fuck you. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, so, but if you, you got to leave some margin in there to say it, no. Yeah. If you, if you go into it and you're like, well, here you go. And they go to fuck you. But you're like, eh, I didn't expect any reciprocation anyway. So exactly. fuck you. Exactly. Yeah. That's why. You know, and the thing is, is now as I give of myself, it's a mm-hmm. gift. It's a gift. Like, you know, I'm investing. I've invested a lot, a lot of my personal self into um, a relationship I have right now. And reciprocation is hard to get. Yes. For good reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still hard to get. But I have to step back and realize that that's a gift. Right. I'm, I'm giving that. I'm not. We're not. We're not in a contract here. Right. We didn't right. sign something saying, if I take and invest this amount of my time and energy into this, that you're going to do this. It just, it can't, it can't work like that. Um, I don't know if that's generally true of everybody or if that's just true of what I need as an individual. Um, I haven't really did the deep dive in, into that thought to, to figure out where it goes. Hmm. Um, but I do, I, I do realize that to, to give without the expectation of receiving is the better place to be for a myriad of reasons. Oh yeah. And, uh, <laughs> without even reading the Bible, that's what God wants you to do. Sure. Yeah. And, um, I would love it, to do a deep dive on, on, on the religious and philosophical stuff because I was raised Christian. Oh yeah. And you know, I recognize all of these different ways that people live mm-hmm. and, and all these different concepts that are floating out in the ether. And regardless of what book brings those concepts to light, mm-hmm. they all seem to be saying the same shit. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's really, it, really intriguing to me. Yes. And as a, as a Christian, it's, 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 it, it's weird waters to, to step into because... Yeah, you're absolutely right, because Christians Christ, wouldn't like that. Christianity is, is rigid. Yes, you know, it is, very. I feel a little weird reading the Bhagavad because... And I'm not, you know, and I've been to Hindu temple mm-hmm. and, um, and when I've gone in there, I've prayed, Yep. but I've prayed to my God. I didn't pray to that God. And they encourage it. Yeah. And so, um, it's, it's just, it's, it's massively interesting. Yes. That whole area. It, it is. I mean, just the whole thing. Uh, you want to hear my theory and I, I do not share it quite often mm-hmm. um so uh, when god when god came here uh or created us sure he created us not in one area of this world but in many areas of the world and allowed evolution per se okay to do its thing god is an artist god has all the time in the world so he can work on many projects all at the same time because a second to him is an eternity to us. Okay? Sure. Keep that in perspective. Now, um, how can I do Uh let's see. Okay. He is an artist, and when he presents himself to an, uh, a higher thinking level of human that he has created, Adam and Eve in all these different gardens of Eden, per se, just as an example, mm-hmm. evolution has created different humans, you know, because you've got some in the North that are white because we don't 
We're not seeing as much sun. We're not seeing as much sun. Yeah. Some are in South Africa. You know, that's just how it has to be in order for the body to survive. Right. Now, as they evolve, they have different ways of doing things, collecting their, their food and how they interact with each other that best fits the environment. Mm-hmm. So you have all these different cultures that develop. Well, in order for God to keep everybody kind of in line with a moral code for when they meet each other establishes religion. Mm-hmm. Religion for each society is different because of the perspective that it needs to be developed. It's based part on of the environment. Part of so the evolutionary... Um, right. It has to fit. So mm-hmm. you have the uh, Inuit who see the spirits of the environment because they have to live off of it. Yeah, part I of mean, the evolution is, evolutionary brew, if you every, will. Right. They don't have, at that time when it was introduced to them, to make any association with a deity mm-hmm. other than through environment. So air, water, earth fire that kind of thing same thing goes with the indigenous culture of north america you know uh they had the eagles and the bears and you know all of these that are on their totem that have spirits Mm -hmm. um these are all angels these are all works of god through a perspective that they can understand and establish a moral code in order to interact with others in the world and same thing goes with Christianity, Catholics and Lutherans, and they all go back to this one moral code that mm-hmm. God established for us to understand as Caucasians in the North, uh, you know, in the European sense, even though the religion itself goes so as far back as to be in, uh, 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 I guess you'd call it Arabic. Okay. So Indonesian or, you know, Jesus was not white. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think so. I don't but, think so. But in order for us, as from a European standpoint, or I don't know, what do you call it, Scandinavian or wherever, the, mm-hmm. the northern part of the world, in order for us to understand it, we still had to give it a perspective and a, and a picture for us to understand. So, long story short, um, God came to all of us with the same moral code of living as humans, but we had to develop it and he had to explain it to us in a way that it works for the society that we grew up in. Yeah. As, so, as I'm, it's, it's really interesting you say that because that's very a, a unifying point of view. Yeah, and, and so many will divide it. Because, oh, sure. Because no one understands that it's my God. Mm-hmm. My God is different from your God. Still the same energy. Still comes from the same source. Same moral code. Yeah. But it changed, had to change for us, for us to follow that moral code. Mm -hmm. My God is different from your God, but came from the same way of learning. You know, the same moral code, the same, uh, it's the same energy. We just used it different. Yeah, that is really a... um a very reasonable um, theory, a yeah, really a reasonable theory. idea. Yeah. There is no way of proving it. You know, I was, <laughs> I was, you know, as I'm reading the Gita, the two main characters are Arjuna and and um, Krishna, mm-hmm. and as I'm reading it, like the things that Krishna is saying, it's like, oh yeah, this is like, this is almost 
these are the exact same concepts as what I'm reading in the Bible. Like, mm-hmm. there's so much parallel. There's so much similarity. Exactly. Um, I'm like, oh, <laughs> wow. There's like, you know, and as a Christian, right? Right. There are limits to, to the ideas that you're supposed to have and, and really entertain. Yeah. And, and the idea that Krishna and God, you know, as we know, Jesus, the Holy Ghost, like that those two could possibly be the same thing. That's blasphemous. Right. That's a blasphemous idea. But I really look forward to, um, I don't look forward to, I recognize and respect the evolution of thought. Yep. That the things that we thought were true a thousand years ago are very different from the things we think are true today. Our understanding I also do respect the idea that knowledge is built on foundations. Yes. And we have found out in the past that some foundations are not accurate. Correct. So God forbid we ever figure out that one plus one does not equal two because everything <laughs> falls apart. Scientifically, I don't think that's going to happen because we have rockets that we can shoot to the moon accurately. You know yeah. what I mean? Right. So I think there's some, there's a lot of science that's figured out and it's solid. Right. Um, but the evolution of thought is really interesting because um, it's definitely not static as we, as we understand concepts deeper and, and, um, and we learn more about this topic or that topic. And, you know, the, the evolution of thought, I, I've, I wonder where we'll be in another 50 years or 100 years. And then you take into consideration the possibility of AI and what its influence. And actually, um, hive, the, the whole idea of hive mind, I don't know if you know anything yes, about that. Hive mind. Hive mind, if you, if you take into consideration hive mind in, in the information era, mm-hmm. what does that do to the evolution of people? That's tremendous. It is tremendous and it's right. almost scary. Yeah, it's it's really it's a really almost impossible thing to quantify. Right. And then you add in what AI might do and 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 um and digital in mind integration, you know, when Elon, you know, finishes the the project where you you know, you can have probes put in your brain and you can interface yeah. directly digitally. Shit like that is going to be we're in for a wild ride. Yeah. Yeah. We're in for <laughs> well, a wild ride. From our pr- perspective anyway, because we'll see the contrast. Um, mm-hmm. The younger generations won't see the contrast. They'll feel more normal. Just like we were talking about earlier with finances, you know, right. Your norm is your norm. Um, last word. we got a few minutes, a couple minutes. My, what do you, what do you want to, what do you want to say? What do I want to say? Um, that I guess that, <laughs> there is a piece of advice I've always given my kids and I give it I used to give it freely when I was in scouts is that you always hear there's always somebody bigger better and stronger yeah well I learned that there is not only bigger better stronger there's bigger better stronger faster and smarter mm-hmm. okay the difference is it's up to you to shorten that gap so it's like when a pyramid is being built, you can build many pyramids inside of the largest one. Right. So there's always somebody bigger, better, stronger, faster, and smarter. It's up to you to shorten the gap because they can't always stay on top. Right. You have to want to improve yourself and those that helped you climb to get to the top. So you'd never get there by yourself. 
It's always that foundation, like you said, that has to be solid to help you on that climb to get to the top. But ultimately, it's you that has to do the work and shorten that gap between you and the best. I like it. Yeah. Those are good last words, man. Hey, we've burned two hours. Oh, no shit. We've burned two hours. Sweet, dude. That's, I mean, uh, almost to the dime. Damn. Um, I, I really appreciate you sitting across from me and, and, and having this exchange. You're very welcome. Every single time I've done it, I've finished just, uh, it's been a joy. And that proves true today as well. My kind, thank you so much for your time. You're very we'll welcome. We'll definitely do this again, I hope, because I think we got some deeper dives. Oh, yeah. So, I'm in. Um, <laughs> thank you again for anybody who took the time to listen. And uh, much love, fam. Peace Bye-bye. out. Bye-bye.